Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks so much for being on the Resource Room Podcast. I appreciate you being here as we talk all about behavior. But before we dive in, will you tell um, listeners just a little bit about yourself and what does education look like for you? Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me. So I am a BCBA, which stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst, and I work full-time for a K-8 to school district. Perfect. And what does kind of a day as a BCBA look like for you? So every day is definitely different, which is something that I really like. Um, Our district is fairly small, so I consider myself lucky in that regard. There's three buildings, so in each day I'm kind of rotating between the three buildings one at a time. Sometimes I'm across multiple districts. A lot of the times I'm in IEP meetings, maybe presenting a behavior plan to a family Other times I'm um, observing a student so that I can gather data and information to prepare a behavior plan for that student. And sometimes I'm either working directly with the student or more often working with the teachers, whether it's the paraprofessionals or support staff to sort of collaborate on the behavior plan and train them on what will be implemented and maybe troubleshoot any issues that are occurring. Do you see a pattern of like, disability areas or different diagnoses that you deal with a lot? Um, What kinds of things like that might some of our listeners be like, ah, I have a kid like that? Or what characteristics do you see in your students? So most of the students on my caseload are special education students, although some are part of the general education population, and maybe those students are being referred through RTI or INRS. Um, But regardless, I would say primarily most of the students I work with have a diagnosis of either autism or some sort of behavioral disorder, like oppositional defiant disorder or some type of mood disorder. And so in some of our self-contained classrooms, the students primarily have autism. So they're all learning in not the exact same way, but a typical type of format, maybe using applied behavior analysis and things like that. And other times, if it's a student with more of a behavioral disorder, such as oppositional defiant disorder, um, those students are often some, sometimes I should say, in the in the mainstream classrooms or in inclusion settings and not pulled out in a more contained environment. And those students are sometimes more um, just oppositional in general, more combative, maybe are compliant one minute and then not following directions the next, sometimes seem quote unquote argumentative um, to the teacher because, you know, you say up and they say down and that kind of thing. And it often just depends on the day and if there's any kind of setting events or triggers that that student is either coming in with or facing at school. What do you see as one of the biggest like problems or behaviors that some of those students, I especially think 
you know, ODD, we see a lot of that in our students who, I, I don't know if this varies in other areas, maybe it does, but for us, kids with emotional disabilities oftentimes fall into one of those categories of ODD or a mood disorder. So maybe let's start with ODD. What are some things, some characteristics that you see in your students? I know you mentioned, you know, you say up, they say down. What does it look like when it's time to learn? Right. So sometimes it can be like the smallest thing that might trigger that student. So it's like, okay, open your books, turn to page 50. We're going to review problems one through 10. And that student maybe didn't complete the homework. So they feel unprepared. Maybe that student, you know, wanted to write with a crayon that day instead of a pencil for whatever reason. We see a lot of rigidity with those students. And so, you know, most of the students in the classroom are totally fine opening the book to page 50 and grabbing a pencil. But maybe that student has like a certain way in their mind that they thought it was going to go or a certain preference. And then also their threshold for tolerating, they don't have those kind of flexible go with the flow skills yet. So if another student had said, oh, I thought I could use a crayon today, and the teacher said, no, we're using a pencil, maybe a student without that disorder would be, oh, okay, I'll use the crayon later. But maybe this student with ODD, that would be the one thing that would trigger them. And they really wanted to write with the crayon. And so instead of having the flexible thinking to say, you know, okay, can I use this later? Or, okay, I'll put it aside. That might be when they might get up and tip the chair and decide to leave the classroom and kind of escalate from there. Do you think that in a situation like that, especially say the crayon pencil example, is it better to be like, okay, just let the kid use a crayon for God's sake. Why are we fighting this battle? Like, is this the hill you want to die on? Or <laughs> is it better to then kind of, uh, let's just get it done. You know, which, which route do you go? I guess, do you give in or do you kind of, stick to your guns and know the expectation in third grade is that we use a pencil and that's what you're going to do. And if they're tipping over chairs and they're doing all that fine, I'm going to fight that battle. What What's your perspective on that? That's such a great question. And I really do think that depends on the student, on the behaviors they're displaying and on their learning history. So if this is a student who is engaging in a lot of those egregious behaviors you mentioned, like about to tip the chair, about to run out and um, you know, they have the potential to reroute and sit and do those problems if I allow that crayon. In that moment, I might say, well, can you ask me nicely? And can we have a dialogue about that? I might not just say, oh my gosh, here's a crayon. In that case, if I can prompt the student to use their words and advocate for themselves, instead of just me working backwards, trying to figure out why they escalated. And if I can go to that student and say, I see you're upset. Is there something you want to say? And that student does say, I would, I would like to use a crayon, please. I might say, oh, sure. All you had to do is ask, here's a crayon. And I don't think of that as giving in. I think of that as reinforcing a skill of communication on behalf of that student. And eventually I would love to get to the point where maybe a couple of days of reinforcing that communication skill, I'm able to teach that student to tolerate a delay. Like I might not let you use a crayon every time, but today you use your word so nicely, way to go. And then maybe next week I might say, you know what, can you do problem one with a pencil and then use the crayon for the rest is your way. And then maybe we're bridging the gap until eventually they're doing things my way, but still peppering in those choices. And another strategy I would give is, 
hard in the moment, but say for the next day, maybe ask that teacher, can you give this student a choice in like two of their assignments? Not all the time, but maybe just for math review and just for their do now. Can you say, you know what, here's your toolbox. Use any writing utensil you want. When it comes to our essay, we are going to use a pencil. And sometimes those students feel more in control knowing they have so many choices in the day. If there's only one or two times in the day that they have to do what the teacher's exactly asking to the letter, they're more likely to comply with those directions. I like that you use the word control because that's what I was thinking. Oftentimes, I think we're in a power struggle that, you know, we're the teachers and we're in control. I'm not going to let them be in control. But earlier you said, you know, maybe it's a shift in what they anticipated was going to happen and then what actually happened. Do you think that some of those behaviors we might perceive as they're trying to control a situation, but actually might be rooted more in anxiety or other difficulties that they're having? Does that make sense? Or is that real? Or am I just kind of putting those pieces together incorrectly? No, absolutely. I think if you really dig into what oppositional defiant disorder or mood disorder is, um, I would argue that that is all rooted in some type of anxiety. And we have, you know, it's funny, we tend to have a lot of sympathy for a student or an individual who might just say like, I'm sad today, I'm anxious. But we don't always have that same sympathy extended for a student who says like, I wanted to use a crayon and then runs out of the room. Um, And unfortunately, the only difference is how they're communicating it, right? So to me, I see that student being so rigid and so hung up on what they wanted and that feeling of control in the moment. But it's so easy, of course, in the moment to say, oh, they just want to get their way. That's all they care about. Um, But I think the first example is really what's happening. They craved that control. They didn't get it. It manifested itself in something silly like a pencil or a crayon. Um, But the more we can switch that lens to see it as a symptom of something that they really are trying to control within themselves, the more we can help kind of scaffold those tools to teach them both how to request what they need and also how to tolerate, you know, the real world. Sometimes we don't get what we always want. I agree. I have a student in mind right now that I'm like that. That's what we're dealing with every day. And sometimes I, I want to side with the gen ed teacher and be like, I agree. Like what, let's just make him do what, you know, whatever, let's fight the battle. And then there are other times that I'm like, can't you just bend a little bit? Can't you get, you know, So I get it. I get it 100%. And I do think I always remind a teacher, like there are going to be times we're not going to bend. Like certainly if it's a safety or a disruption of any kind, like rules are rules, safety is safety. And other times, you know, if I've told the student, I've given you nine options to use crayons and the one time is the pencil, I'm certainly not trying to back down. If I feel like I've provided enough proactive supports, And that my one teaching opportunity for them to tolerate frustration or delay is, you know, one out of 10 times, then I certainly will want to follow through and enforce that because otherwise that teaching opportunity is just lost. So then could you explain a little bit then what is disruptive mood dysregulation disorder? What does that look like for a student in class? So disruptive mood dysregulation disorder is something that has been, um, I've been seeing more and more of diagnosed recently. And, you know, we could argue whether that's from COVID and the pandemic or not, although I was seeing an increase in that before. Um, These students tend to have like really extreme irritability, 
really like frequent, intense, like maybe we'd call them a temper tantrum, but generally just their mood shifts one way and then it might shift back. So it's a little bit almost like a step above ODD in terms of intensity because they're not just being combative and argumentative, but it's actually causing like something like an extreme mood shift that's probably causing an extreme behavior, like that running away, that throwing the chair or something like that. And then sometimes just as quickly, they're able to sort of refocus and then you can see their mood start to settle and come down again. Is that something that either medications can cause or medications could help? Yes, we have seen a lot of success with students. Um, I think most people would agree, and I myself would argue that the be- the most success we see is when we see the combination of the child being treated by their physician and also with behavioral supports and collaboration between the home and the school. So I'm definitely not a proponent of just, you know, seeing these behaviors in students and talking to the parents that you need medication, you need medication, come back to us when you're on, you know, this or that pill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hear a lot like pills don't teach skills, right? Like you can put a child on any different pill and it may stabilize their mood, but it's not going to teach them to, you know, tolerate things they didn't tolerate the day before. So that's where we come in. But sometimes it is helpful when the, you have the parent support to evaluate um, this child by a medical professional and ensure and let us know that maybe there's a medication that this child is eligible for that can just sort of bring them down and even them out a little bit to be able to learn new skills. But we're certainly not having one without the other. And we do get some parents who are resistant to medication. And, you know, in my mind, that's something we can have a conversation with parents about, but we can't ever force them. And I'm certainly not in that parent's shoes having to make that difficult choice. So I do respect that choice, whatever it may be. And it doesn't mean we're really doing anything different our end in school. We're still providing the positive supports and we're still taking data. And sometimes that data can be helpful to say to the parent, maybe you want to share this with your doctor anyway and see if it's something that changes your or the doctor's mind on the medication question and maybe not. And that's fine too. Um, I have a student who um, I've had him since he was in kindergarten. And so now as a second grader, we're seeing these behaviors very similar to what you described. We have highs, we have lows, and he just recently started medication for attention. And so it's, you know, completely kind of unrelated to those moods. And so now it it just feels like he's in this yo-yo of ups and downs. And I, I don't know. So that was what made me kind of ask that question is not that he was fine, quote unquote, fine prior, but we were not seeing those behaviors before that. But even since then, they have had a lot of medication changes and things like that. But then the mom says, you know, just in our family, this is common. So she's, she doesn't seem to think it's related to medicine, just more maturity. And as things get harder and, and he's realizing he's a little behind, you know, just many, many factors. And so I was just curious what your thoughts were on the medication piece. Could that be triggering some of these ups and downs with mood? That's so interesting. I definitely think so. I mean, certainly you could have a medication for something like ADHD that starts causing those unwanted side effects and could either mimic um, symptoms of an even a separate dis- disability. And that's why I think it's important for just consistency between the home and school. And if the parents are not willing to share, you know, every little change they're making, that's certainly their prerogative, but at least encouraging the parents to be 
consistent in following up with their doctor and with school reports so that they can share the changes that they're seeing both in the home and in the school so that the doctors can be aware. Because of course, they could be one of those students who are getting the unwanted side effects and nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. But maybe the parents aren't seeing that at home when their child is, you know, just before bed and not having those side effects. Um, and also, again, I was the way I was trained was just data, data, data on everything. So if you start a medication, you could potentially have a baseline and then track from there and really see objectively, you know, it's not just me thinking in this effect in my head of I know he's on medication, so I'm watching him extra closely, but really just getting the objective data, like is the behavior you're looking at increasing or de decreasing and also giving it time and the doctors might say, oh, it takes four weeks or six weeks to kick in. And so you may have to just buckle down for a few weeks until you see the full desired effect, but really just kind of monitoring that really closely so that the children are not getting any unwanted side effects for too long with no end in sight. Yeah. His mother is absolutely wonderful. She communicates with us. We communicate with her. It, it's good. It's just kind of heartbreaking to see him going through this and then you wonder like, is, is it the medicine? Is it, you know, I, I don't know. It's just very, very hard to watch for him because that that's not the kid we knew for two years of school, you know, and then now it's very difficult. And, you know, that's such a perfect example too, of, I think that as children get older, sometimes you know, teachers, educators, I've been guilty of this in the past. Like we send, we tend to see if a child is not medicated, that like that medication would be the golden ticket. It would be the end all be all. Like if they would just medicate this child, all our problems would go away. And yet the example you're describing is you're seeing all these unwanted behaviors because of a medication. And I think parents sometimes have seen other examples of that too. And hence why they're so cautious and thinking mm -hmm. about it so carefully, whether or not to medicate their own child. So I really do try to always emphasize that like it, it is a very personal decision. It's a family decision and we can't really put ourselves in that parent's shoes of having to choose. Yes, maybe this would help, but maybe it would actually make things worse or yes, make our exactly. dynamic worse for several years, which is a horrible choice for any parent to make very stressful. Yes, definitely. Um, so you talked a little bit about data and kind of having a baseline, being able to actually report. And those, you know, that's important because we don't want to just be saying our opinions of what we're thinking and feeling, but have real solid data. So what does data collection look like for you? How do you use it? Um, how do you make it easy? Let's kind of dive into that world of data. Sure. Um, so when you asked about how I use it, um, most of the things, data trackers that I use are via Google. So whether it's a Google sheet or a Google form, I have kind of shifted away from a lot of the paper and pencil data, although I still use them often. Um, but if I'm really putting data together to look for patterns into a graph, uh, I love Google Sheets because it is so super easy to use once you get the hang of it. And it also makes it really easy to share. So once I share that with a teacher or an administrator or a parent, anytime I update it, that other person is seeing the updates in real time. So it's just very simplified in that sense. And as far as what we're tracking, um, of course, we're sometimes tracking academics to see if there's an impact in 
their learning and their assignments, but often we're tracking those behaviors that we were mentioning before. So potentially leaving the classroom without permission could be a behavior we're tracking. How many times that happened a day? It could be putting hands on another person. It could be um, a verbal outburst of some kind. And those can be tricky because you want to really define them very precisely so that every person is tracking them in the same way. And that's why I kind of shy away from words like tracking, like disrespect or off task, because those are very like catch all statements that could, what's disrespectful to you might not be disrespectful to me. So first I'm really defining that behavior and then teaching the um, teacher or the paraprofessional how to collect that data, unless it's me myself collecting it and then trying to review that data so that we are monitoring, you know, whether it's an intervention that we're doing or a medication that family is doing, like, are we seeing a trend? Is the behavior going up or is the behavior going down? And what does that look like for our next step? Whenever you talk about, you know, maybe you're collecting the data, maybe a gen ed teacher, you know, you can share that. How do you balance who is collecting what and when do you try to, I'm a control freak, like I admit it. So I try to do it all, but we know that they're also not with us the entire school day. So what does that look like for you with kind of balancing who's collecting what pieces of data? That's a great question. So usually if we are in kind of the beginning stages of maybe evaluating a behavior, I will head up that that front load piece of it, right? So sometimes we're doing a full functional behavior assessment where it's, you know, a report that culminates in a meeting with this parent and we're putting a behavior plan into an IEP based on all of that data. And sometimes it's more informal. I'm just going into the classroom and doing a couple of observations and tracking the data. Either way, I might be taking that ABC, that antecedent behavior consequence data to kind of identify like patterns and triggers of what's causing the behavior and what consequences are maintaining it. Or I might just be getting the initial baseline. Like maybe I can go in for an hour at a clip a couple of days in a row and see that this student is engaging this behavior about, you know, 10 times an hour or something like that. What I then do is kind of try to streamline it into something that's manageable based on the classroom he's in or she's in. So that might look very different for a student who's in a self-contained classroom who has a one-to-one aid and can take pretty much almost anything I throw at them. Um, they could track the frequency of the, the behavior themselves, or they could do something like an interval data where I'm making it a little bit Um, more practical versus if it's a child in like a mainstream classroom with one teacher and maybe a classroom aide, I'm definitely not going to have them be doing the same types of data because that just wouldn't be practical. So in that case, I'm trying to balance um, making it as practical and easy for the teacher as I can without kind of losing anything in the end where it's just not useful to us. So maybe there's even just like a yes, no for the morning and a yes, no for the afternoon. Or maybe it's just like a per period, if they have the child for eight periods a day, I'm having them check off like which periods they had the behavior in so that it's like hopefully just three check marks. And that's all that student uh, teacher has to commit to for that day. To me, that sounds very doable. And I think even as you were talking, I I wrote down what settings we might have, like a classroom teacher in a gen ed room where they're there for the majority of the day. Like you said, that's going to look very different than somebody in a self-contained setting where you could pretty much ask them to collect every single time they shout out, every single time they refuse, every single time, you know, that behavior is exhibited. Um, What would you look for then, like, as a resource room teacher, like for me, where I might have a student for 30 minutes, 
and we're bam, 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 moving through, what kinds, I guess, the, the happy medium there. We have, you know, maybe once an hour in a classroom versus any time it happens in a self-contained setting. What would resource tracking look like? So it also depends on, I think, the behavior that the child is having and how often it's having. So if the child in a resource room is having like, um, you know, when something triggers them, they run out of the room. Maybe on average, that's where that teacher interview with myself comes uh, becomes really vital. Like if I can meet with the teacher first and they say, you know, it doesn't happen every day, but like on Tuesdays before gym, they always are triggered. And sometimes Fridays can be rough. I can say, you know, can you try tracking how often it happened? just like tally every time it happened. And that may be feasible if it's happening maybe three times a week. But if they say, you know, they're doing this behavior where like I give them a pencil and they crack it in half and it happens every time I turn my back, I can't expect them to be doing that in that 30 minutes when they're trying to teach and also tracking every single time (laughs) they're doing this behavior. So in that case, I might say, you know, can you just track during do now? Like when the child is, um, you know, hopefully independent with a task, how often did that happen? So then at least we're having some type of measurement that where I can compare apples to apples, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, how often that's happening. And it's not quite exactly how often, but it's a a good guesstimate to go off of. Or I can do some sort of interval data. I can say like, if I divide up your 30 minute block into, you know, X amount of check boxes and say, while you're doing each assignment, can you just tell me, did it happen? Yes or no. I don't need to know how many times it happened. And again, I'm not getting an exact count, but for some of those high frequency behaviors, if I'm using that type of partial interval data, um, there's a lot of research to show that it really is a good enough guesstimate to use to make decisions off of later. That's good. And I think very doable whether it be a classroom or a resource room setting, it's doable, especially when you're trying to cram as much as humanly possible into a short period of time. That's what we're all doing, to be honest. And so I think that's doable. Yes, I learned long ago that it could be like the best data collection method in the world. But if the teacher's not going to do it, or if the teacher's not going to see the value in it, it's really useless. So that's where... Um, especially that collaboration piece. Like I I don't really ever want to give a teacher something that I, when I was teaching, wouldn't have wanted to do. So I know the feeling of like tracking something for someone else and being like, what are we doing with this? Is someone really looking at this? So um, I try to check in with the teacher frequently enough so that hopefully I'm not bothering them, but also that they know that I am involved and there to support them and you know, that, that we have a purpose for this data. And if I ever feel as if it's too much for them, then we can reevaluate. I think that's extremely important, even just to make sure the relationship is good, that they will be upfront and honest with you, that they are able to see the value in it. Because I mean, let's be real. There are some times that we're collecting data and it's like, what the heck is this for? (laughs) What are we doing? Or it's like, I'm going to collect this data for X number of weeks because that's what they say to get them evaluated. And after that, I don't care, you know, so we have to make sure that there is a point and that they understand why are they doing it so that it can be used effectively. Exactly. And I've really been learning that as I go too. I think in the beginning of, you know, my career, when I started in the public school um, sector, for example, I came from a a placement where it was an out of district school for students with autism. So we took data on everything. We looked at the data constantly, but that's not a public school. It's, it's completely different. Um, So 
I think I've been learning like a little bit each year as I go how, you know, data is a wonderful tool, but like anything else, it could be overdone. Like we don't have to collect data every single trial on students' programs always to monitor effectiveness. Sometimes we do um, in our self-contained classrooms, like we do data Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday, Thursday might be our teaching days. And I kind of love that because it gives the staff member and the student more chance to be present with each other and just like put the pencil aside and really like build that relationship and not have those intervals where they're scribbling something down on the piece of paper. And hey, three out of five days, if that's more practical for them and can lead to a better relationship, then to me, that data is more useful than every single trial that that student completed for that week. How often do you check in on that data, maybe on average? So even to me, we could talk about different types of students that self-contained might look very different than somebody in a gen ed mainstream classroom. So how often are you checking in to see what does that data look like? So it definitely depends on the student and the setting in that um, in some of those self-contained classrooms, those teachers are also looking at the data. So they may be looking at it almost every day because they're part of the ones taking it. And then in that case, I'm kind of checking in with them once in a while and saying, okay, let's troubleshoot what's not going well. Let's add on to things that are going well versus like a student with an intensive behavior plan in a resource or um, in class support setting where I'm really the only team member that's analyzing the data. So in that case, I'm looking at the data every time I'm in that building, or I'm at least trying to hit it once a week and saying, how's the week going? Can I check yesterday's data? Like since last Friday, when I was here, like what, what has been going on so that I can evaluate closer to real time. Because in those cases, especially if it's a situation where I might not see that staff member and student for like minimum of two or three more days, I don't really want to miss anything. If there was like a major trigger or a major incident that we could plan ahead for next time. Do you ever have classroom teachers who are resistant or refuse? I mean, like, maybe they reluctantly do it and are a little, like, ticked and cussing you the whole time, but they do it. Or do you ever have student or teachers who are just like, mm, no, not doing it? So I, I've been very lucky. I mean, where I am now, I haven't had anyone just flat out refuse to take the data. Um, I do have, you know, some people are more opinionated than others on whether or not they will think it's going to be useful. And to that, um, sometimes I try to have the conversation and explain our long-term goal. Like, this is not me giving you a chore. I don't want you to just do this and, you know, just to resent me for it. There is a purpose. And if I can explain that purpose just from my end, you know, I know you as the teacher collecting it might not see that flip side where I'm in an IEP meeting with the parent presenting it, but it's going to be very useful for that. It's going to be really helpful in working towards our common goals with this family to get the student the services or supports that they need. Um, and some teachers come around with that, you know, and some don't, but I haven't had a teacher that will just will not do it and, you know, flat out refuse. Um, I think like anything else, there's that you know, people who will do it until till the end of time, um, people who will do it once they see the value in it. And then there's people who, you know, may not really get it or understand it or that be their thing. But um, I've been lucky enough to work with people that we always have that respect for one another where, you know, they might say, well, I don't really understand this, but okay, I get what you're asking me and I will do that. <laughs> I, I agree. I have been fortunate. I've never had that situation, but I just imagine, you know, 
I, I guess I live in a bubble that everybody is there for the same purpose and going to work as hard as I will. But then like online, I hear of other teachers or I'll receive emails about things and I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that a professional or that a teacher would do some of these things. And so I just, I don't know. I feel like it could happen. <laughs> People are difficult. Yes. I've heard horror stories as well, which, you know, I thank God I work in yes. a very nice district, a small district. And I do think that's part of it because my caseload is smaller than, you know, my, like my horror story would be having like 16 buildings and having to report to them each, like once a week. I mean, it would just be so hard to get things done. And I also think it would be hard to have those conversations with people. Oh, for sure. So I wonder if maybe sometimes it's harder. Well, I'm sure it is harder, but I wonder if that could be a reason why there's more resistance sometimes. So I'm very, um, I think consider myself blessed and grateful to work in a place where I'm able to see those people you know, frequently enough where maybe they just think I'll hound them until it happens. Anyway. <laughs> or there's at least a relationship there. It's not like, who's this woman emailing me? Like, what does she want from me? <laughs> right, exactly. One other thing that you and I had talked about before we pressed record was um, about rewards and how a lot of our students with emotional disabilities or, you know, where behavior is a problem with them, Rewards are just kind of our go-to, and that's just built into their behavior plans and, and things like that. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings on rewards? Um, and how do, how is that sometimes perceived by general education teachers? So I think it's similar to the data collection uh, scenario where some teachers are like, oh, great. Like, you know, where do I sign up? Tell me what to get, do, how often to do it. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where it's like, you know, I believe all the children in my classroom should work for a good grade and should work, you know, be intrinsically motivated for their grades and maybe feel that adding the rewards would in fact be detrimental to that goal. And then of course you have everyone on the spectrum in between. Um, I do think it's important again, to have the conversations with teachers that our ultimate goal, myself included, is not to have a child be reliant on rewards forever. So that's like a, a conversation that I do like to start out with. Like, even though I might ask, be asking you to deliver some type of reward on a rather dense schedule right now, like every time they finish an assignment, they get this star. And when they get those five stars, they can take their break. And I, you know, I'm often met with, you know, I have 25 other students and they're all doing their work and they're not getting stars. And so then we get into that conversation of, you know, giving the students what they need and not that whole fair, not always being equal type of thing. Um, if you have a student who is chronically engaging in behaviors and not doing what the expectation is, despite having built that relationship and despite having made it really fun and trying to motivate them in other ways, I do think that's when rewards are appropriate. Um, and I think in fact, to not offer those positive behavior supports, I wouldn't ethically think that was something that was an adequate plan of action. And I also kind of, you know, would like to say sometimes just, well, how is that working out for you? You know, like if you want this <laughs> to be intrinsically motivated and yet day after day, they're not, um, we can try that hope and pray strategy until the rest of the year, 
or we can try a different approach. And again, knowing that our ultimate goal is maybe to fade off of those rewards. And that has been successful in my experience in a lot of times where we're able to put a little boost in and give that star chart or that sticker chart or tokens, whatever it may be. And, you know, sometimes they're not always successful. They're not always successful right away. It's trial and error. But I've worked with a lot of students who over time were able to fade that out and say, now you might get a star after a whole day, or now you might get a star after a good week, or you're just working for like a, a great report to mom, two thumbs up. And we're able to fade back those tangible rewards if we've really celebrated those successes with students enough. So where in my mind, we're teaching them to be intrinsically motivated by adding those and then shaping it back. Because those are students who haven't been able to be proud of themselves that yet. They haven't been able to get those good grades and finish assignments and get that positive note home to mom because they've had, for whatever reason, this loop of failure. So I think that those conversations are important to get that teacher buy-in. Um, sometimes go better than others, as always. Um, but I do think that rewards um, come into play there and can be really powerful for those students. I agree completely. And I really think teachers are so focused sometimes on academics and standards, and we've got all these things to do, which I get. Like, I've been a gen ed teacher, I 100% understand. But just like you said, we are teaching intrinsic motivation and we're teaching that. And that is a prerequisite to all the other things that we're going to learn. We can't teach fractions. We can't teach decimals or how to cite evidence if we don't have some of that intrinsic motivation. And sometimes a reward is, you know, is built into that process of teaching that. And maybe yeah. that's what people need to hear sometimes is, you know, what are we teaching? We really are teaching something. It may not be a third grade standard or a fifth grade standard, but this is what, you know, we really are still teaching something. Exactly. And a lot of those students, if their behaviors are so frequent or disruptive, you know, it becomes that conversation of like the content that you're trying to teach, the student is not going to grow up and, and get a job and be successful in that content area if they cannot self-regulate and if they cannot ask for a break and if they cannot use their words appropriately. So I'd argue that that behavioral skill right now is even more important. I think like just like what you were saying than that academic skill. And sometimes it does mean a shift. Like I think the more we try and laser focus on the academics, 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 and ignore that behavior when in fact if we shifted to the behavior and taught that like the skill that we want to see it might just take a little bit longer but we're able to circle back to where they're ready to learn those academics when they are self-regulated and are able to communicate their wants and needs effectively and too i was just thinking you know we as teachers have far more control over things than what we even know or realize and the longer that we're resistant to those rewards and motivation to get things done, just the longer we are delaying their ability to, to reach that curriculum or to learn and master those skills because we're just widening the gap for them. Because we're, we're putting our heels in the sand and saying, no, we're not going to give a reward every single time they finish something or no, I'm not going to do whatever, you know, and, and we're just widening the gap because we're making that material inaccessible to them. Absolutely. And that I think brings back to that um, prior conversation where if it is a teacher who's reached out for my supporter, you know, for suggestions and they're not interested in rewards, 
you know, it could become a conversation like, okay, what are we willing to try? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. if I'm hearing you say that you're facing difficulty, I'm hearing you say the student's a chronic problem or a disruption to themselves or others learning environments, um, we have to do something different. Like us just sitting here and kind of rehashing and even tracking the data alone is not helping that problem. So whether or not it's even always going to be a tangible reward, sometimes we're able to find, you know, really think outside the box and work for like a small group social setting game or something that the whole class can benefit, like a dance break that's very benign and not impacting that teacher's schedule. And those are all wonderful options. But, you know, sometimes you get those students who are not interested in those things. Mm -hmm. They make it a little bit tougher where we are going out and like, you know, I'm scrolling Amazon for like the (laughs) mouse car that they really want to work for or something like that. Um, But we have to start really with what's motivating to them and not what we wish motivated them. That was really a question I had just written down as you were talking a few minutes ago. What do you do about the kid who the their wants or what motivates them literally changes all the time? Because I have a student right now that it's like, once he earns something, he's like, mm, I don't really care about that anymore. You know, and so it's like, dude, it is the end of the year and I'm running out of ideas here. <laughs> so what do you do? Or do you have some suggestions for that? Um, sometimes I think earning just like a a free choice is the way to go because like we mentioned before, like so many of our students just crave that control. So I've done a lot of with those types of students where like the prize box got old or like the stickers got old, like I would just label it like, you know, Amanda's choice. So like you're working for Amanda's choice. And then when they get Amanda's choice, we don't even have the conversation until they get it. And then I can be like, oh, I have like three different options for you. Like we could take a song break. I can look in the prize box or like the classroom next door needs help with like a special helper. And just totally like thinking outside the box to like usually more like um, activities or roles so that I don't have to constantly recycle the same prize box items. And sometimes those kids really like that because if they are craving control, they might want to like be seen as the helper or like the special student or something like that. That's perfect. Uh, do you ever use data to then start saying like, okay, we have been consistently maintaining this level. It's time to decrease the frequency of that reward or how do those two things play together? Yes. Um, I just had this come up in the past few weeks actually, where this one student has been doing so well and he needed to earn three breaks in his day to earn sort of his prize, we call it. And then we were just, I mean, he was consistently earning it every day. So it was great, but it got to the point where like, we knew he's ready. He all, we knew he was going to resist a little bit. Um, so, but he, you know, he was kind of losing instructional time where he didn't need to be losing that anymore. And we didn't want to hold him back. So we made sure to really meet with him and go over it like, you know, top to bottom so that we weren't pulling the rug out from under him, so to speak. And we kind of tried to emphasize it like we're so proud of you. You've come so far, like you are able to go your whole day without, you know, disruptions. Like you're earning three breaks every single day. I mean, that is like old hat for you. Like you have really stepped it up for us and tried to boost his confidence. And so then we kind of dropped the bomb and said, now we were requiring you to earn four breaks for a prize. And of course, his initial reaction was like, well, what? I'm never going to do it you know? And so we kind of tested it out. And the first day, I 
think he did because he was like, uh, kind of like very excited about it. And then the second day he didn't. And so we were like, did we make the wrong choice? Like, do we go back to three breaks? And I always say like, we can't do any decision based on one day. And that's where the data comes into play. So we, we kept at it. And sure enough, he, he rose to the occasion and he doesn't earn them every single day, but I think it's telling that he has reached a level of where, whether he earns them or not, he can tolerate that disappointment. And either way, he's in the classroom more for instructional time, sort of as he should be and getting closer to the goal of just being like any other student who's taking a break once in a while if they need it. So it's been successful. And there's been times when I've tried to fade out supports that haven't gone so well. And we can always go back, like we can always backstep, but we always try to make changes like really slowly and systematically so that it's not flipping a child's world like upside down. I think too, I, I just can't help but relate that to like a reading level. You wouldn't read at the exact same reading level all year long when they can read every word. As a teacher, you'd be like, well, we need a book that's a little bit more challenging or just a touch. And I mean, you wouldn't take them from a first grade reading level and throw them to a fourth grade reading level. You would make small increments. But if all you ever read is a first grade level book, you're never going to make progress. You do have to do things that are hard. You do have to do things that are difficult so that you can manage those emotions, manage those feelings and choices and all of that. So I think that's good to, to have in mind that when you start seeing that, hey, we're consistently earning those three breaks or whatever it is that we've got to, we've got to change something. Right. And it just like you said, I think it goes hand in hand with capitalizing on that growth mindset. Like we had printed out little things like, um, you know, so if he comes in after a difficult morning, like this is hard, but I can still do it or whatever it might be. So we, it was a good learning experience for him, I think, but also it would not have gone well if he weren't ready for it. So we had the data to show that he was ready. And so there were like some bumps in the road, but it, it went well. And so usually when we're ready to start fading those out, like you said, if we can celebrate it enough and as and then equate it to like, it's as if you're reading a book when you used to read a word, like this is huge for you. Usually if the child is ready and has those prerequisite skills, it's, it's going to be successful. Do you ever show your students the data? So um, sometimes I do. I really never had been used to doing that before, just based on the population of students I've worked with and not often, but sometimes I do. If I think it could be a good thing, I would never show them if it was a negative. Yeah, definitely. Um, but maybe just like, look how far you've come. And then lately I've been um, designing like a lot of charts or checklists where the student is kind of self-monitoring. And so even if their goal is not, they're not the only recorders, like maybe the teacher's also recording a goal and it's something very simple, like each period, like yes or no, you achieved your goal. And maybe the student's recording tracking their own data and then the teachers also so we can compare and again very specific students in mind so I can think of a lot of students that would not go well with whether it was like dishonesty reasons or (laughs) would just like their self-esteem reasons but some students who I'm thinking of a couple students with ADHD or who really want to improve but constantly feel like something's getting in their way and when I can start to have them be more aware of their own triggers. Sometimes them recording their own data just in small doses can be helpful in like guiding them towards, you know, like you noticed here that period three was difficult for you. And then you chose this action. Like, how did that work out for you? So I would say very specifically when I think it could be helpful. And maybe even based on age, 
and maturity and things like that. Like some students, you know, if you're saying period three was rough for you, that looks different because you're older and then they are making choices and they are kind of aware of some of that would be better. Obviously a first grader yeah. would not be able to do sure that. that. Yeah. yeah. There's not many primary students age where I would yeah. think that would be appropriate, but yeah, as they're getting older, some students, I think it's kind of eye opening for them. Mm-hmm. Cause I even think like with my kids, they're kindergarten through third grade. So sometimes if it's like, Last time you were only able to decode two of these words, but oh my gosh, now you did six. Like that makes them feel like they're doing something and they're making progress. And especially some of my kids who are aware that they missed a couple need to see, but last time you only had two. And so, yeah, you still missed four, but last time you missed eight, you know? So just even being able to have some of those conversations and let them see the progress does make them feel good. And I feel like that would translate to behavior too in the right situations and with the right data. I also would never show them that data if it didn't support the, oh my gosh, you're doing better, you know, situation. So. Yes. Many factors at play. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's important for them to sometimes see that so that they can, or or even for some of my kids, um, maybe they don't study words at home or maybe they don't, you know, practice some of those other things. And so their data may not look like some of the other kids. And I, you know, there's a reason for that. Yeah. I think it could be great conversations that Mm -hmm. it leads to in terms of like, you know, just in general, getting older, our actions having consequences Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So where can listeners find you online and then what will they find when they get there? So on Instagram, my handle is Beltrans Behavior Basics, and I also run a Teachers Pay Teacher store under the same name, Beltrans Behavior Basics. And on Instagram, I post a lot of tutorials actually on how to create data trackers. And then on Teachers Pay Teachers, I have a wide variety of data trackers, both for academic IEP skill goals and then also for behavior. So a lot of them are Google resources. So if it's something where you're thinking of venturing into a digital data collection and you're not sure where to begin, I have a lot of really simple um, trackers that are already all set up for you and you just need to enter in like the date, the frequency of the behavior or something like that. The graph is made, it graphs for you. Um, and I try to include my email on every product there as well, so that if there's any ever, ever any troubleshooting, they can reach out to me directly. And some people like um, to reach out to me and I'll do like a custom project for them. Like if they have a student or a classroom or behavior in mind, and we can work together to build that for them. I love doing those actually. I don't know how you have the time for that. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> it's a fun outlet to do. And then other times I put it aside for a little bit and just kind of let it sit. Um, but it is something that I, we were speaking earlier about how sometimes it just gives me ideas for my own school. And then other times I'll get ideas from my own school and kind of infuse them into my store. But I think that in general, anytime I can make that sort of like fun and appealing for a, an educator, that's rewarding for me. And then hopefully I feel like that educator has like taken something away way that they can actually use. Like I want it to be practical for them. It's definitely affordable for them. And it's just something that could really help them in the classroom. It's not something that's going to like sit on their shelf and collect dust. I also think too, because behavior, we've literally said it probably 10 times as we're recording. Well, this situation is different than that. Well, because of this, well, because of that, 
everything is so different. I think that data collection with behavior, you need lots of things. And what works for one student, you might need something else for another student, or maybe the age is the factor. Maybe it's the behaviors that they're, you know, displaying. Maybe it's the setting. You need lots of options because you have lots of situations. And so if you have a lot of that created for teachers, that would be wonderful because then they can just kind of pick and choose. Or I could even see some light bulb moments of like, oh my gosh, I never thought to track data like that. Or, you know, for this student, that would work perfect for them. So I think it's great that you're offering that. Yeah, I think that's why I like doing the the special orders like every once in a while, because, you know, I've been doing this for how long? And like you said, I have so many different data trackers. And then someone will say, oh, well, can you design one like this? And I'll be like, oh, how, how did I never yeah. think of that version before? And now that's something I'm going to use in my own, you know, world. So it's like the possibilities are endless, which is sometimes overwhelming. But yeah, I think the more variety to choose from, the better so that you can find something that really fits for whatever scenario you have going on. I could also see too, I say this, I feel in every episode as well, that I make things harder than they have to be. And I've been trying to be like, whoa, 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 Amanda, this is too hard. Like if it's taking that long, you've got to rethink and how can you make it more simple? That's probably been the last three to five years of my life of realizing like, oh man, why do I do this to myself? Somebody could see one of your tracking sheets and be like, oh, seriously, like I have been doing that the hard way for the last 10 years when it could have been so much more simple or easier for a paraprofessional to use or, or whatever. So just seeing the options that you have could make things so much simpler for somebody. That's true. I think that's just something inherent in our profession, or maybe that's just, you know, what draws, if you have the personality where you overcomplicate things, you're in education. For sure. For sure. <laughs> well, even like with my reading series, I um, share a classroom with the fourth and fifth grade teacher and she is new to our school this year. And so she told me one time she was like, I didn't even know I needed this. And I could see the same being with data like, I didn't even know I needed this, or I thought what I was doing was working. So I didn't even, you know, pursue anything. But then whenever you hear, oh, somebody else is doing this and this and this, you might realize that you need some of those things too, to make things easier. Absolutely. Or at the very least, it's, you know, it's like one tool in your toolbox. Uh -huh. And that's what I always say too, whether it's a, a behavior plan or a data tracker or something like, you know, I do a lot of trainings and I'm like, you might, this might not apply to you. Like 70% of this might not apply to you. But in two years, when you have that one kid who's mm -hmm. like climbing up the walls and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what did she say? I'm like, just save it. Like you never know, or just right. save my contact information because we work with such a wide variety of kids. Our, our classrooms change, our settings change, the kids change. So we never know, like the more tools that we have in our toolbox, you know, the more we have to be prepared for. Do you do trainings online that people like that listeners could sign up for? So actually in my Teachers Pay Teachers store, I have um, like pre-made Google slide trainings and I have like a little bundle of special education, like intro to autism, intro to ABA. I have one about oppositional defined disorder. So that is like a nice introduction that some um, classrooms or teachers buy to present to like their grade level or their paraprofessionals or things like that. That would be very handy. 
Especially, you know, if a student moves in and the classroom teacher's like, I don't even know what to do or give me like a rundown of what we're wanting, you know, or what the expectation or what things I might see. That would be really good. Yes. I also have um, a resource that is a, a paraprofessional guide. And so it might not apply to every single classroom. It's geared toward a self-contained autism classroom, but it is editable and I can customize it as well. And that one, I've received a lot of feedback that it was helpful on training paraprofessionals because I know as a teacher, when I was managing a classroom with a lot of paraprofessionals, I felt like sometimes it was two jobs at once. So something that can make that easier, I think could be it. an asset to those kinds of classrooms. Yes, that's perfect. I love that you have those for teachers to buy and learn from um, because sometimes we're thrown in the deep end and we're just expected to swim. (laughs) We can't swim all the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me this evening to record this. I think it's going to be very valuable to teachers Um, because behavior is something that I feel like either you're comfortable with it, you feel good about it, or it scares the bejesus out of you. So I think it's nice to hear, um, somebody who's living and breathing that every day, share some tips and tricks. And uh, what I have gathered from you is even a lot of mindset shifts and a lot of things that we need to change that we might be doing. And for what reason? Why are we doing that? Right. Absolutely. I think the mindset shift, I think, is more than half the battle sometimes. Exactly. And whether that's our own as the special ed teacher or the mindset shifts that we need to help the gen ed teachers, you know, experience, either way, it needs to happen. For sure. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Well, you have a great night and I'll talk with you later. Thank you. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.